0: Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Hello, I'm Karen Proud, editor of the SVA Quarterly. In this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, we hear from Dr. Neela Saldana, Executive Director with the Yale Research Initiative on Innovation and Scale otherwise known as Why rise Dr Saldana visited Australia on the invitation of Social Ventures Australia, SVA, to give the keynote address at the summit on impact at scale in September 2023. Here in this podcast, you'll hear Dr Saldana's keynote exploring why successful pilots in the social sector often don't achieve the same results at scale and provides five questions to consider when expanding a change program.
1: So I hope that in the next few minutes, what I'd really like to do is um, provoke some thoughts and some ideas as we're getting into um, the uh, the discussion today around scale and what that means and what impacted scale really means. But before that, I want to ask you... What does impact at scale mean to you? What does it mean to you? That's good, success, meaningful change. It's a lot of change, large-scale change, social change, positive change, meaningful change. That's great. Generational change, optimizing investments, depth, and reach. And I think a lot of you really said what scale is about. Uh, It's one word that I think expresses many different things. So scale can be about uh, Vietnam, 93% of people adopting a certain behavior. Um, So in Vietnam, road accidents are very common. The usage of helmets is not very common. Only 40% of people were actually using helmets. Uh, And there was a comprehensive program, which included actually manufacturing helmets, doing a big behavior change campaign, making that part of government regulation to actually have 93% of the citizens adopting helmets and really reducing road accidents. That's what impacted scale can look like. Uh, But impacted scale can also look like what we often think about, which is across countries, across continents, uh, a teaching program, teaching at the right level where you have uh, volunteer teachers and contract teachers who teach outside or within teaching hours and really get students at different levels uh, to to, to really get to the next level. This is a program that started in India with Pratham and uh, with researchers, and it was a long partnership that then led to it now being uh, in 13 plus countries in india um, in africa across these countries and really impacting about 60 million children since it started about 4 million children each year so that's what scale can actually look like Uh, but scale can also look and some of you mentioned depth scale can also look like depth which is um, there are 700 million people who live in extreme poverty and um, poverty, is, as we know, is, is multidimensional. One set of interventions won't always help. How do we deliver a holistic set of interventions? In this case, it's giving um, you know a livelihood asset, livestock, for example, but also providing people with cash to meet their basic needs while they're learning how to use this livelihood asset. It's also providing them with the coaching. It's also providing them with how to think about saving and investment. It's also providing them with training about how to think broader. That's a holistic set of interventions to the ultra-poor graduation initiative uh, that started with BRAC, uh, the world's largest (coughs) NGO with 40,000 volunteers and health workers, uh, but has subsequently been expanded to about, I think, 14 countries and counting. Um, and the way to do that, and, and you know, 100 million people, et cetera, and the way that's been done is really through partnerships. Not, necessar- not necessarily that BRAC itself has done all of this work, but through partnerships in governments across a range of units. That's what scale can look like, delivering a holistic set of interventions at depth uh, to communities that need that. But scale can also and that's something we've heard a lot in the last few days that I've been here scale is really about changing systems Right, so um, I know Australia has some pretty good health insurance better than we have sometimes I think in the US uh, um, but many countries including the country I grew up in India does not have universal health coverage and almost 60% of health coverage is out-of-pocket expenses Uh, because not covered by insurance or the government, and that leads to a lot of people in poverty. That was the case for Thailand in 2001, before uh, there was a move towards universal health coverage. And that required regulation. It required merging of budgets, merging of four different budgets, creating uh, financing flows, understanding who uh, negotiates and who actually implements health services, and now you have 98% of Thailand's um, citizens who are covered by universal health insurance. So that's what scale can actually look like when you're actually changing an entire system. And my favorite is uh, you know, coming from the corporate world, I think scale also looks like this. Uh, McDonald's is present in so many countries today that The Economist actually has, for those of you who are not familiar, a Big Mac index, a lighthearted index at how the currency valuations are, depending on the price of the Big Mac. So that's what it can look like, where you're global. Uh, but if you're in India, the Big Mac is completely different from what, what I'd get in America. It's, there's no beef, because you don't have beef in India. So it's actually a potato burger. It's completely different ingredients. It's extremely localized. And I think to that, that is the definition of scale when everyone recognizes the Big Mac, but it's completely different in the local context in which it is. And so the whole point is scale can be about reach, it's about depth, it's about changing systems, it's about being global but highly local, it's all of these things. And the the question I want to leave with you here, and I hope it sets the, the ground for reflection, Uh, And this is a key difference when I worked in the private sector, and now when we are looking at these big problems of social change, a lot of you mentioned scale means change, uh, which is that it's not always about scaling the organization. What we are here to do is really scale the solution. And we are all different organizations and different roles that we are playing to actually scale that solution. And I want to acknowledge the reality that we are competing for resources. So we are in a competition, and we are in a collaboration. And we have to find our way. But the goal is to scale the solution. It's not about me producing you know, the next flavor of Mountain Dew, and only I can sell it and not Coke. I'm scaling the organization. This is all of us saying, how can we scale early childhood interventions? So that's something really for us to shift our mind frame from, how do I scale my organization to what role do I actually play in scaling the solution? Otherwise, we're not going to get, we're going to get to some scaled interventions, but we're not going to get to the depth and the changing of systems uh, and the holistic interventions that we really want to see. So that's something I want to leave you with, that if we really believe in what you talked about as large scale change, we need to think about scaling um, the, the, the solution and not about scaling our individual organizations. Okay, we all know that that's not very easy. If you want to get to that nice view, you've got to climb the mountains. Um, So in the next few slides, I'm going to run through a couple of ideas about what those barriers to scale might be. So at the Yale Research Initiative on Innovation and Scale, this is what we do. We are a research initiative at Yale University, and we actually look to see what are the barriers to scaling something, and what are the barriers? What are the d- uh, differences between impact at scale and impact at a pilot level? I'm going to share some of those learnings with a few uh, stories from around the world, and I hope it's going to prompt uh, you as you're thinking about scaling and impact at scale in the discussions that you're having today. Okay. But before that, and this is really the genesis uh, of Y-Rise, I am going to tell you a little story about uh, countering seasonal poverty and hunger in rural Bang- uh, Bangladesh. So Bangladesh is a country of about 170 million people. Uh, a lot of it is agricultural. And as it turns out, with a lot of agriculture, you often have um, seasonal poverty just before the harvest. Okay, So invariably, this has been happening for 100 years. Uh, where farmers and their their families run out of money just before harvest time, because they then sell the harvest and they get their money. What happens is that people actually cut down uh, on what they're eating. So there is hunger during this seasonal time of year. Uh, Now, there are jobs. 100 million people are uh, are located near urban centers where there are jobs for these people temporary jobs, construction workers, security guards, which will actually give them uh, the money that they need to tide over this period of seasonal poverty. But what the researchers, including the faculty director at YRICE, Professor Mushfiq Mubarak, he's an economist at Yale University, they found that people weren't actually going to these urban centers. So what they did was they gave um, a loan, a small, low-interest loan. It's about 11 US dollars. And what that uh, did was that it actually paid, um, it was enough for the cost of a bus ticket and a couple of meals. It didn't guarantee a job. All it said was you take this, you go to the nearest uh, urban center, nearest city near you, uh, here's enough for a round trip bus ticket and two meals, so you know, you're net zero at the end of it, and you can then go and find a job. Kay? And so they did that, and what they found when they ran the initial study with uh, 1,300 households is there was a 22 percentage point increase in migration. And really importantly, people migrated. I think 80% of those people got jobs, 80 or 90%. And they sent money back home to the extent that the families in the village got and uh, about 500 calories more per person. That's like having a whole extra meal uh, per person for the families that they sent back. So incredible return on investment for $11. It turned out y- there was just that little friction. So then they scaled it, uh, I haven't shown the midpoint, to about 6,000 households and they found similar effects. they have really good effects. And then they scaled it to 150,000 households and suddenly the effects just went down. Okay, it's no effect, very little effect, um, no effect. So I'm gonna ask you before I tell you all the answers, what do you think happened? What do you think went wrong between uh, the pilot and the scale up, and I'll just read some of the options. Um, was it that people who migrated, you know, discouraged others from migrating, and so there was less migration in the scale up than in the pilots? Uh, was the wrong audience targeted? Do you think the government interfered and stopped the program when it was being scaled up, or do you think that maybe the pilot was done in a different context than the scale up? Okay. Let me give you the, uh, so the right answer is that the wrong audience was targeted. A lot of you I know talked about pilot was done in a different context in the scale up, but it really was the wrong audience was targeted. And this is something that really, um, okay, this is something that happens in a lot of, whether it happens at Uber when you're running promotions, or whether it happens in a scaling context. You have three groups of people in any um, intervention you want to run, or any promotion you want to run if you're in the corporate sector. (laughs) Uh, There's a group that will never take your promotion, no matter what happens. Those are the folks in red there, the never takers, okay? There's a group, uh, now there are two groups in the middle. There's a group that will always do, they would have done it anyway, regardless of if you gave your promotion or intervention or not. So that's clear. always takers. Um, And there's the group in the middle that you really want to target, which is the group that wouldn't have done the behavior unless you give them your promotion or your intervention. Because the never takers, you're wasting your money. You can go after them. They'll never take your intervention or your promotion. You're always takers. You're also wasting your money because they would have done it anyway. You really want to get to that group that, without you, they wouldn't have done that. That's what researchers want to see. That's what we want to see as success. The trouble is, when you go out into the real world, you don't see that. People are not coming to you and saying, hey, I like your loan, but I'm an always taker. I would have done it anyway. No one's going to do that, right? And no one's going to say, oh, I'm never going to take up your loan. So all you see is a level of interest. The NGO is offering a loan. People come up and they say, I'm really interested in taking your low interest loan. You have to make a judgment about whether this person would have gone or not in the absence of your loan. Um, If you are not able to monitor them carefully, not able to talk to them, not able to engage with them, because you're in so much of a hurry to disburse the loans because you don't have, which is exactly what happened in this case, you're under time pressure to disburse the loans, you don't have monitoring staff, you're just going to give it to the people who are most excited to take the loans. And that might be a large proportion of the always-takers. You don't have time to think about like, uh, wait a minute, would these people have gone anyway? So that's what happened in this case. A large proportion of the people who showed an interest were the always-takers. And the NGO was pretty good at identifying the never takers, okay? Because incentives are aligned for the NGO to, find, to not to go after people who would never take the loans, but they didn't have the monitoring capacity to identify the always takers, and that's what happened. So that's, you know, that just shows that when you're scaling up or when you're looking at impact at scale, uh, just because you had a really successful pilot and even more successful slight scale up does not mean that the next step is really about success at all. So that led to really the creation of YRISE to say, can we prevent or at least think about some of these questions? In one of the meetings, I got asked "Well, tell us you know, the checklist. And I said, I don't have a checklist, but I do have a set of questions that you might want to ask when you're scaling up something or to think about impact at scale. So those questions are, and I'll run through them. Uh, the first one is, you know, it worked somewhere else, will it work here? That, of course, we all know that, but sometimes we forget to ask that because we get so excited about the results of the pilot, Uh, that's external validity. The second is what are unintended consequences of actually scaling something up. That's what we call spillovers. The third is a really important one which doesn't often exist at uh, concept stage, which is what's the political calculus? Of scaling up because once we start to scale things up it comes under the radar of administration of the people themselves in a way that if a small NGO is running a pilot it doesn't necessarily come under anyone's radar yep you can do that the fourth is this interesting question what if everyone does it and that's not always positive Um, so if everyone did that would, would things really change and the fifth of course is what are implementation issues so let's go to the first one it worked elsewhere will it work here what we call the question of external validity, or it worked in pilot, will it work in scale up? Uh, a small story from India. So India is a country where there's high rates of anemia, and uh, you know many Indians, including myself, are actually anemic. Uh, but it has really bad consequences if you're also very poor and if you're malnourished, because it leads to a low birth weight babies. It leads to maternal deaths because of bleeding. So it's a real problem. It's not just a a chronic condition that you have to manage. Uh, and there are many solutions to that. One of those is salt fortification. Everyone uses salt. Why don't we fortify salt? Um, so the pilot was done very successful. And then uh, there was this um, large scale marketing campaign to have salt fortification across the country for all populations. And there were no results in the scale up. So, again, what do you think? What was different between pilot and scale up? You know, was it a different audience, different pricing, different location, or a different NGO implementing? What do you think was happening here? Okay. So I just want to say that all of these are actually legitimate reasons. Okay. In this case, it was a different target audience. Or uh, really what happened was uh, the audience that responds to this kind of fortification is adolescents. And the pilot was really carried out amongst adolescent girls and boys and found that it did have effects because it's typically more effective to do this before you have anemia when you're just showing signs of it. But the nationwide scale-up was done amongst the population. So you still saw some effects amongst adolescents, but that was wiped out because you really didn't see effects. And just as Dr. Lee mentioned, you know, a lot of money had been spent on this nationwide campaign. So it's really important to think about, was the audience that this was done at pilot the same as the audiences in, um, in the scale-up? So that's a, you know, it worked there, will it work here, it worked for that location, will it work for this location? The second question is, what could be unintended consequences, what we call spillovers? Um, So many of you have heard of positive spillovers, um, you know, herd immunity, when you vaccinate, you need to only vaccinate about 90% of the population or even slightly less in order to get everyone immunized. Um, you know, if you deworm children, uh, you know, from parasitic worms, you don't have to do it with everyone because the, the children who are not treated often get the benefits of that, uh, and that's something to think about. If I expand a preschool program, it's not this, just the children who uh, get the benefit of that, but also maybe other children, maybe parents and caregivers. What's the influence or what's the spillover effect of doing this? Uh, you know, uh, across the entire group. Um, There's also negative spillovers, and uh, this is, you know, a a favorite story of mine, which is um, a few years ago uh, the vulture population, a certain species of vulture population in India uh, died out by about 90 percent. I mean, literally the population collapsed. Um, And you wouldn't think that, you know, that's fine and that's sad, but what really happened was in those locations human mortality went up by four percentage points. Now what was happening? So it turned out that there's a drug, diclofenac, uh, that's given to livestock to prevent against disease. And the drug is totally harmless, and it's harmless to humans. And um, you know, livestock owners are giving it. But it's toxic to vultures. Okay. So when the livestock died, and vultures are the scavengers of nature, they were feeding on the carcass, the vultures died out. Okay. But you still need someone to get rid of the carcass, uh, in the absence of vultures, it was feral dogs and you know other animals that took the place, but they also had threats of rabies and other diseases, um, and they're in much more close contact with humans, and so human mortality actually increased. That's an example of a negative spillover effect that you would not have seen if you just said diclofenac is harmless to humans, it's harmless to livestock, that's OK. And there's now a lot of research around this keystone species collapse and what it actually does to the ecosystem. Uh, and I think that's a particular importance to us today with climate change. So spillovers can be positive you know, when you have herd immunity from vaccinations or from trachoma treatments or from you know, health interventions. They can also be negative. And that's something to really think about. What are the unintended consequences of scaling up something? Um, the third, which is really important, I think this is something which I've learned a lot about, is what is the political calculus here? Um, and this, as I said, when you're doing something at pilot, you know it's good. Let the NGO do it. If you're doing small-scale migration, that's great. It's a poverty alleviation. Now, if you're suddenly recommending that entire villages go into cities, you're going to have a rebellion from the cities. Why do we have so much migration? You're going to have politicians who say, this is not what I got elected on. Uh, you're going to have a lot of political um, you know, thinking that didn't exist when there was a pilot. And that's something for all of us to think about when we're thinking about impact at scale. What is the political calculus here? So I'll give you an example of, uh, a- and that political calculus might actually, we've seen time again that the effects are often smaller when government implements a program versus when an NGO implements a program. And, uh, and therefore, someone actually said, we shouldn't think about, oh, we're just scaling this intervention. We should say, this intervention is scaled by government. This intervention is being scaled by an NGO, because those are two often two different interventions, given the constraints. And there are many constraints, but I want to come to one in particular which might be interesting. So here's the case of contract teachers in Kenya. So in Kenya, uh, the teachers are part of the civil service. They're civil servants. Um, and but there's a huge shortage of them so the government uh, wanted to look at expanding this pool of teachers by appointing some short-term contract teachers with certain dynamic incentives to improve learning but they said let's you know let's trial it out with an NGO so this NGO World Vision appointed teachers and the government also appointed teachers uh, at the same time and what they found was the teachers appointed by the NGO had you know did really well There were learning gains uh, but the ones that were appointed by the government had no effect at all. Okay, uh, Same program, same recruitment, same you know, teacher, same pool of people. So what do you think? Why didn't it work when government was implementing it? Just any thoughts that you have? Trust, I see a lot of trust. No training, quality at scale. Okay, Delay, that's interesting. Skepticism, There's a lot of trust, culture. Incentives, restrictions, great. Commitment to NGO values, yes. Okay, um, so let me tell you what, what actually happened here uh, before I get to the next one. So, um, what actually happened was um, some of this, there were some differences in monitoring. There's no difference actually in the way the teachers were recruited or the pay that was being offered, so that wasn't the difference there were some delays uh, you know initially in hiring but that actually didn't make a difference so there were some some implementation considerations you know the ngo was monitoring uh, a little uh, little more uh, but one of the big things that happened was at that time the government announced that they were going to significantly they're going to have a big contract teachers program 18000 contract teachers so that there's a teacher union in kenya and the teacher union started agitating that the contract workers should be part of the teachers' union, and that they should be hired as, because they said if the government is hiring them, they should be hired as permanent civil servants. Uh, There should be no reason that there's this two-tier system. And so the teachers that were hired by government, uh, they saw themselves, they identified with the teachers' union, and they said, yes, if we are being hired by the government, We should be, uh, you know, permanent civil servants. There was a lot of agitation. Salaries were delayed. Incentives were delayed, and those teachers didn't do uh, as well in teaching because of all these negotiations. The teachers that were hired by the NGO didn't actually see themselves as part of the government service. They saw themselves as hired by NGOs. They didn't have this agitation. They didn't identify with the teachers' union, even though there was this. Uh, this agitation happening, this, this movement happening at the time that they were hired, but because they were hired by a different entity, not the government, uh, they saw themselves as contract teachers and business as usual, and you had learning gains. So yes, a contract teachers program works unless people have expectations about who is hiring them, and those expectations lead them to sort of, you know, uh, negotiate and delay, and that impacts learning gains. So a very important lesson here is it matters who hires. Um, it's not just about you know go- trust in government or incentives. It's also about people's expectations when government hires or when the scale-up is done by government versus the scale-up done by even a large NGO. So I just want to leave you with that one because that's not often um, an answer that we, we get or people think about. Uh, but it's important to know what people's expectations are of government. So um, uh, this, this one is an interesting one. What if everyone did it? What we call general equilibrium. Every time we think of a pilot, uh, we are essentially operating in what economists call a partial equilibrium. That is, other things have remained the same. And we are only, uh, and when Dr. Lee talked about you know randomized control trials, we are seeing treatment, and we're seeing control, and we're just comparing those two, and we see effects. Uh, The question in scale-up is, would these effects still hold if everyone was trained? Uh, Think about an entrepreneurial productivity training. If you train a small group of entrepreneurs, uh, then they're going to be more successful, they have more consumption, they have more income, they know how to get revenue. Now if you train everyone, all the entrepreneurs, they're all now much better trained than before, but now we've leveled the playing field right we don't have trained and untrained we have everyone who's at the same level and some of those gains actually go away so this is a good thing to think about Uh, if we implemented this nationwide with these effects of education or training go away is that a good thing is that a bad thing you still want people who are trained but maybe the specific effect you were looking at in the pilot doesn't exist and uh, really i think it's a relevant one which is job services training in France. Uh, it was run by the government, and you know these, these programs have been shown to have a lot of effect in pilot. Those who are trained typically tend to find jobs. What the study showed, when it was scaled to the entire district, everyone could was trained in how to find jobs. There was a competition for jobs. So those people who are trained, yes, they got jobs. Those who were not trained lost jobs. The net result was zero, okay? Mm-hmm. And so that is something to actually think about Uh, when we are implementing programs. Who wins? Who loses? What gets displaced? Is that displacement effect outweighing any positive effects? Uh, How should we be thinking about that? How do we compensate losers in the process so that they don't derail the system? So there are lots of questions to think about from what we call general equilibrium or what if everyone does it? Uh, Especially since a lot of you mentioned we want to change systems. Uh, and we want systems change. Well, when systems change, it's a new system. And that's what we've got to think about. Is that system better? Is that worse? Who is it better for? Who is it worse for? And finally, we come to you know these issues I'm sure all of us struggle with, especially those of us who implement, which is implementation issues at scale. And the single bi- biggest issue is how do we keep implementation fidelity? Uh, we ran a preschool training or an education program with 100 of our best and brightest teachers with our best researchers, with our, in our best location, and now we're going to scale it nationwide and we're going to go to various quality of teachers, various locations, how do we keep that implementation fidelity? Uh, do we need to re-up our training? Do we need to increase that? So here's an example where you actually had two governments running the program, unlike an NGO and then government. This was actually run by local government in pilot, and then by uh, the, the national government in scale up. It's a parent reading program. Parents were encouraged. They were given a set of resources to read to their children, to uh, improve outcomes in early childhood education. This was in Denmark. When it was implemented that by the local government, it was quite successful. So it was scaled up by the national government, no effect. Now this isn't an NGO and government problem like the last time, the two governments, so what do you think is happening here? You know, is it that the local government had people support? Is it that they engage more with the community? They had smarter people maybe in local government? Or they were just lucky? Okay, and first of all, I want to call out to the shout out, good shout out to the people who said local government was lucky. Uh, because uh, you know you internalize the the first lesson I told you, which is if it worked there, does it work here? And the first lesson of that is you can have false positives, so it could be in all of these cases that i 'm telling you about that the pilot people just got lucky. And you see an effect and actually there's no effect at scale which is why we often say you, you can't just rely on a single study to say oh this is great um so yeah so so you know very nuanced understanding of yes maybe that could have happened uh, but it didn't in that case so most of you did have a good intuition about it um it turned out that the local government what you had to do is parents had to download an app and that app was correlated with you know how they um, how they read to the children or their behavior change Uh, It turned out that in the local government, local government had people who went out and engaged with the community and persuaded people. Uh, 48% of parents actually downloaded the app. When it was uh, run at the national government level, they didn't have the people to do this nationwide. They sent out a flyer. And only 24% of parents downloaded the app. In many schools, parents didn't download the app. So just that simple change about engaging intensively, the level of effort wasn't replicated at a nationwide scale. Uh, Led in this case to the program not really working so when we tend to think of the program We have to focus on the implementation details. What's the dose? What's the you know, what's the effort? What's the monitoring? Uh, How do we scale this up? What's the cost of doing each one of those and it isn't necessary that our costs just go down some costs might go up Because you're getting you know, you're not getting your best teachers. You're not getting your most innovative folks uh, you are going now, and and that cost might go up, but can we get other economies of scale? That's something that we have to actually think about. So I wanna say, um, I wanna leave you with a few questions. The first one is when we say impacted scale. You know, what are, what are we talking about? Are we talking about reach, you know, 93% of citizens? Are we talking about holistic interventions to a community? I've heard a lot of discussion about place. Uh, In the last few days, are we talking about really getting communities out of uh, uh, disadvantage and poverty through holistic interventions? Are we talking about reach across countries, what Australia can teach other countries, and vice versa? Um, Are we talking about reach in terms of changing systems? Uh, Are we talking about reach in terms of being global and yet local? And it's all of those things, but really, it would be good to have that discussion. Um, What are we invested in? are we invested in scaling our organizations or really scaling the solution and if you are invested in scaling the solution what does it actually mean for our roles uh, in that entire uh, problem solution and what could be complexities of things that are run at scale versus in pilot you know external validity will it work here what are the unintended consequences where are the vultures uh, you know and if you get rid of them is that a bad thing or a good thing What's the political calculus here? Not just you know, how government works, but how people respond to government. What if everyone did it? Who are we displacing? What, you know, what are, who are the winners? Who are the losers? Is it a washout? And what are implementation concerns in terms of fidelity? So I'll just leave you with these reflections. Um, and with a final, I, I love this quote, uh, what works at scale may be different from scaling what works.
0: Supported by the AMP Foundation and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, SVA is investigating one of the biggest challenges in the social sector in Australia, what it takes to create impact at scale. The results will be shared in a paper to be released at the end of the year. To access a copy, go to the SVA quarterly for articles on impact at scale and sign up to receive the paper when it's published. Related articles and podcasts can be found on the SVA quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly.